0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Erin Brightwell with us to talk about her new book, Reflecting the Past, Place, Language, and Principle in Japan's Medieval Mirror Genre. It was published by Harvard University Press last year. Dr. Brightwell is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan teaching and researching about medieval Japan. This book is the first in the English language to closely examine the mirror genre, or in Japanese, kagamimono, from medieval Japan. Dr. Brightwell traces the role of historiography in Japan, a topic that has received little attention due to language and disciplinary boundaries. So welcome, Dr. Brightwell. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's begin with a difficult question. Do you consider yourself a literary scholar or a historian? That is always a doozy. Um, I would say I'm a, his-
1: I'm, sorry, I almost misspoke. I would say I'm a literary scholar um, with maybe historian leanings, uh, I am trained primarily in literary studies, so that's why I feel it isn't the best thing for me to claim to be a historian, and I'm certainly not an institutional historian. But as you know, in the book, I really want to problematize those distinctions um, in the context of medieval Japan, when I think that reliance on thinking of ourselves as literary scholars or historians is one of the reasons We've been able to overlook things like this genre that I'm saying, you know, was actually a real thing in the medieval period.
0: That's awesome. So, how did you begin your career in uh, Japanese studies?
1: Oh wow. <laughs> well, it's a it's kind of a winding path, as you might know. I was a German major long, long ago, um, and then after I graduated, I was you know I spent a year in Austria. And at the risk of oversharing, I had a very serious boyfriend at the time, and he wanted to go back to Asia because he had studied Chinese. And I this is so embarrassing. But, you know, I was like, OK, sure, I've I've never been to Asia. Why not? <laughs> um, so the two of us, you know, we applied for jobs and um, ended up in Japan on the jet program. So that was actually my first introduction to Asia was really Rather than arbitrary, I would now say lucky, Um, but it was just you know a combination of circumstances. And I remember in my jet essay, this is another kind of embarrassing thing that my students tend to laugh at. Um, I wrote about how I knew nothing about Japan other than the James Bond movie "You Only Live Twice," and I would hear that over and over again when I was in Japan, and um, my colleagues would be like, "Oh." 007. <laughs> it's like, yes, that was that was that was my essay. Um, so yeah, it was really lucky, and well, you know, I had such a wonderful time on the jet program um, that I really decided I wanted to study Japanese more formally and to see what the academic study of Japanese language and culture might open up for me. So I went to the University of Washington, which was one of the few places that had a second bachelor's. Um, And I really just felt that I had found something I I wanted to spend more time doing. Um, And sort of ironically, at UW, you are forced, at least back in my day, to take Bungo one semester, or one quarter of it at least. And I postponed it as long as I could. I really didn't want to take classical. And my advisor at the time, Amy Ota said, you might want to consider the possibility of taking more than one term or at least having that, you know, leaving that open in your schedule. And I took classical and then I just that I really I love puzzles and classical was like a giant puzzle to me. So um, that sort of reaffirmed my interest in Japan. And sorry, this is getting a little bit long winded. But I was also taking Chinese at the same time. So I ended up deciding to do an MA in Chinese. And I stayed at UW um, working with some wonderful faculty. And then I slowly realized I wanted to do kind of a comparative or um, a project for my thesis, my dissertation rather, that would allow me to integrate both traditions. and so my the faculty at UW encouraged me to apply elsewhere and see what my options would be, and I did. And that was when I made the move to Princeton, where um, I found a lot of support for that kind of project. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's the condensed version,
0: believe it or not. Wow, that's quite a journey yeah (laughs) i think at the end of the day we i guess we all have that boyfriend to thank for so that we have this awesome book to read today (laughs) um thank
1: you (laughs) you know really i feel like i should uh i should really be thanking my all my faculty mentors who um (laughs) you know they, they really picked up uh a lot they were so encouraging and i should also mention that you know they supported my studying in Japan. They supported my studying in the Netherlands, um, and so I had so many great and generous mentors who made time for this kind of at first amorphous project, um, and then really moving into a the direction that eventually became the book.
0: Yeah, that, that's truly really a bless. So this book um, that we're reading today. Uh, in which you talk about the mirror genre from medieval Japan. Um, For our listeners who haven't heard of the mirror genre, how would you describe these works? When were they written and how were they written?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably most of our listeners um, who haven't heard of this. Um, Thank you for calling it a genre. That's what I'm proposing that it is. This is uh, a set of texts that... I am suggesting constitute a genre based not so much on maybe European ideas of what goes into a genre, but in terms of shared intellectual commitments. So these are all books that one are called mirror or they have, you know, kangami in the title, but it's much more than just, uh, you know, the title, um, they all deal with the past. So they all share a commitment to narrating the past but they also all share a commitment to presenting the past or historical change more broadly as something that's subject to cosmological rules. You know, what those rules are will change um, from mirror to mirror, but each of them presents the, I get yeah, historical change is fundamentally subject to a greater cosmological logic. So that's one of the big commitments that they have. They also, all really, I think, exploit the power of the idea of place. And this comes through in the way that they typically have a um, preface at the beginning that sets up the following content as as a transmission received at this site. Even though there are two mirrors that don't have this preface, I would argue that in those two, the notion of place is very important. Um, they all have an implied geography or an implied center. So I think this is something that is common to all of these texts, too. And as I believe I also talked about, you know, I started out in that long journey I just narrated to you. Um, I started out as a linguist, actually, when I was doing Asian studies at UW. And so I, I always am looking at the way texts are written and not just the register, but you know, what language selections are made. And so I was struck as I looked at manuscripts in particular of these mirrors between, or I was struck rather by how the visual impact of a mirror written entirely in what I will for convenience sake call Waboom differs from the visual impact of a mirror written entirely in kambum. And that also is then gonna differ from the visual impact of a mirror written in a hybrid. So I wanted to think, and I wanted to think rather that these texts treated the power of language selection as a really important thing. So that kind of emphasis or the, I would say commitment to the idea that language selection is part of their claims to authority is another thing that I saw as constant really across these texts the texts themselves and of course they also um by and large self designate as mirrors and there's usually within most of them some acknowledgement of other mirrors typically the great mirror o-kagami but not only o-kagami they they create sort of um to borrow uh, takeshi watanabe's term they create these genealogies between with between with other mirrors um, the texts themselves stem from the late 11th century. This is when the Great Mirror, O Kagami, was written. And the last mirror that I looked at was, it looks like its narrative present is the late 14th century. But there continue to be additional entries sort of glued on to the end. I, it looks like at least, with the final dated entry breaking off in. Um, 1434. So it's actually, you know, some a little bit over 300 years that we're seeing these texts produced uh, and trying to present some sort of order in a time in Japan that is, I think, pretty famously known for disorder. So
0: fascinating. It sounds like these texts are very um, interdisciplinary.
1: I guess in a certain way or maybe my way of thinking about them is no I like your I like your assessment that they are interdisciplinary or they 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 open themselves up I think well to perspectives or motivations that are driven by what's usually thought of as different disciplinary concerns.
0: Yes and you gave a lot of discussion in your book to this question that whether the mirror genre belongs as literary works or historical ones, could you speak more about this? Sure. Um, I think what I was what I was really trying to push back
1: against was the old familiar narrative in which the kagamimono have been treated as part of the genre of historical tales or urekushimonogatari. And I felt that this was a sort of misleading categorization um, for several reasons. One, of course, it's, it emerges quite a bit later. It's not indigenous to the mirrors themselves. They don't talk about each other or themselves as Rikishimonu They talk about themselves as Kagami. Um, but two, you know, that category of the historical tale is really premised on excising about half of the corpus of extant mirrors. You know, we have eight, um, seven to eight mirrors from this time period that I mentioned, and only three to four have been recognized as quote unquote historical tales. So I really wanted to call into question what it means to use a category from several centuries later that relies on erasing half of your data set to create a narrative of Japanese literary or historiographic development.
0: Indeed, that's very thought-provoking. So in the center of your book is this Okagami, The Great Mirror. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us briefly what it's about and why is it so important?
1: Sure. So The Great Mirror is... Well, it's often been, Let's see. What is a good way to characterize it? It relates the fairly recent past. Um, this is, and it's relating up to the ten sixties, if I recall correctly. We think it's dated to about ten eighty six. Um, I'm I'm giving a more precise date than is actually attested. So there's some Japanese scholars whose names unfortunately elude me. Um, but have proposed, you know, about a twenty-year gap between when it was written and sort of when it what it says is its narrative presence. But that is a text that presents an account of the past that's to be somewhat simplistic. Is the rise of Michinaga um, or the rise of Fujiwara no Michinaga and all of the things that made it possible, and it's presented as the testimony of this sort of. Wiley raconteur who's i now he's preternaturally aged i forget how old he is if he's 190 or 180 but he has showed up this guy yotsugi has shown up at the urinin this uh, famous at the time temple in kyoto for what is going to be lectures on the lotus sutra um, and this temple was very famous for these at the time and yotsugi happens to run into uh, or I I don't remember if he runs into this person or if he's come with him, with Shigeki, his friend, and then a young samurai, a um, young warrior, rather, or perhaps attendant, um, but in any case, a young person who is not a part of their party. And this younger person is watching, and Yotsuki and Shigeki decide that they're going to entertain the audience before the Lotus Sutra lectures by telling everyone how it has come about that things are as they currently are. Um, And, you know, I think that this how emphasis is really important. And then the subsequent narrative really takes the form of, I guess we could say arrayed biographies. So it's, you know, the biography of one person after another, but always underpinned with this logic of karmic causation or karmic causality that, you know, this type of event is what led to so-and-so's flourishing or so-and-so's downfall. And so that's one of the things that I mean when I say that they're presenting the historical change as subject to rules, um, this is an important text, I think, because as every person who writes about um, *Okagami* and probably *Ega Monogatari*, uh, the Tale of Flowering Fortunes, too, um, says, they they always invoke um, the famous *Hotaru* or Fireflies chapter from the Tale of Genji where Genji finds Tamakazura, his adopted stepdaughter, reading tales. And then they have this weird sort of fraught flirtatious, at least on Genji's side, um, exchange about tales versus chronicles or official versus unofficial history. And a lot of the scholars of the historical tale have looked at that moment in the Tale of Genji as sort of the starting point for thinking about what does it mean to write a history in the vernacular? And I think that O Kagami is one of the answers to that question. Um, certainly, Ega Monogatari has also, or Tale of Flowering Fortunes has also been recognized as a response to that. But O Kagami, I think, is a response to both the Genji and Flowering Fortunes um, because. It is not only going to be exhaustive, like Genji says that the vernacular tales are, but it's also going to provide some structure, some causation, which I would say at least is not an obvious element in Tale of Flowering Fortunes. So I think it's really trying to set itself in maybe a triangle with those two other texts.
0: So from your description, it sounds like Okagami, The Great Mirror, is a pretty important text in the history of Japanese um, texts, or I guess if we want to call it literature or history. But um, your book is the first in the English language to talk about this, this uh, mirror genre. Why has or Why have these texts received so little attention?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably a host of factors. But as I mentioned before, you know, we have this very familiar narrative that we have inherited from the early 20th century, both in Japan and in the U.S., of how literary writing and historiography developed in Japan. And so, as I mentioned, um, or as I mentioned in the book, rather, you know, I, I invoked the very uh, influential nativist uh, literature scholar, Haga Yaichi, who postulated, he, well, he's not the first, but who was instrumental, I think, in popularizing the notion of the Irekshimo or the historical tale. And in Haga's definition, this is going to be tales in the vernacular, tales about the Japanese court, and tales that are from or reminiscent of the Heian period. So that's actually a very limited um, set of the mirrors, as I mentioned earlier. But that has become sort of the received narrative of how Japanese literature has developed, or that has become a piece, I should say, of this received narrative. So, you know, we read, over, first there were official histories commissioned by the court in classical Chinese, and then these were replaced gradually by histories in the vernacular. But the problem with the, mirrors, when we look at them in a more um, inclusive way, is that most of them don't actually fit uh, Hagayaichi's more narrow definition. So we have mirrors that are written entirely in Kanbun. We have mirrors that are written in what I call a hybrid register that are alternating between Kanbun and Wabun. We have Mirrors that have nothing to do, at least directly, with the Japanese court. You know, we this my this project started out in my dissertation, writing about kara kagami, um, which is the China mirror, and it's all about the history of China. Um, we have I talk a little bit about Nomori no kagami in the book, which um, I think is Keller Kimbro has translated as the Mirror of the Watchman in the Fields. You know, that is dealing with poetic theory mostly, but also some historical elements. Azuma Kagami, of course, has largely been ignored by literature scholars. Um, although Komine Kazuaki uh, issued a, a call for us to take it more seriously back in the 80s. Um, and by us, I mean literature scholars. And then, you know, more recently, Elizabeth Euler has engaged with it. Um, but, and then this last mirror that I, th- I was so excited when I found um, the Mirror of the Gods, shimei or Shimei-kagami. Um, almost no one has written on that, even in Japanese. And I think, you know, a legacy, so it's easy for me to blame it all on this, you know, this old narrative, which I do think lies at the heart of it, or of our unawareness of these texts as a whole, although they are more widely known in Japan. I, I do want to be explicit. But one sort of legacy of that is that even in Japanese, the critical apparatus for these mirrors um, that don't fit into that nice handy Rekishi category is largely absent. So for instance, a lot of the mirrors, so Karakagami, for instance, the China mirror, there's no critical edition, so no annotation. Um, there is a typeset edition of each of them, so that's great. Um, but you know, so, very little scholarship on this text besides um, recent work by Yamada Naoko. Uh, the Water Mirror, which I glossed over in this most recent recitation. Um, recent annotated translation in Japanese. So that's great, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, mirror of the Watchman in the Fields. There's uh, Gunshō Rijū. Uh, so there's a typeset edition. And then there's one other typeset edition in the, um, in the Waka series, the name of which escapes me. But, you know, some of these, like Shinmeikyo, only exist in ruiju or manuscript form. So to work through these kinds of texts, you don't have the kind of scholarly support or scaffolding that you have when you work through the more established texts. So I think that is a very real factor in why we don't necessarily turn to these texts or why they don't get picked up. And even in Japanese um, are not very well represented in secondary scholarship.
0: I see. Now there's something that you mentioned that I found was rather interesting. You mentioned this, uh, Karakagami, the China mirror. Now, why would a Japanese historiography talk about China?
1: Um, Yes, that was the question that I asked myself when I started my dissertation. And I think, There's not one handy answer, um, which is what makes it more interesting. And it gets even more messy or messier because we don't have the whole text. Um, There is a Kamakura period catalog that says this should be in 10 maki and we have six. So we know from the beginning, we have a preface that leads up through the, Latter Jin, but we don't have anything for the Tang or Song, um, which ostensibly would have been covered in this text originally. And I think that there are a couple, at least a couple of different factors that are behind this um, this text production. You know, it's been postulated by Ogawa Takeo um, and other Japanese scholars that this was a text. So this is a text that's basically a digest of the highlights of Chinese history. Um, pretty, it's a little bit uh, more violent than something like *Kara which is really an emphasis much shorter, and is talking about the highlights of Chinese literary history. *Kara Kagami*, the China Mirror, gives us more sort of the political and historical, and sometimes literary highlights of Chinese history, and. As I was saying, Ogawa Takeo and other Japanese scholars have suggested that this was intended perhaps for a warrior audience in Kamakura. Um, so as we know, you know in this time period, even though um, perhaps Chinese language ability was not celebrated to the extent that, to the extent that it had been or that certainly reading it had been in the um, Heian court, Chinese knowledge of Chinese history is still and literature is still very important and it still carries a lot of weight and constitutes an important i suppose type of cultural capital so one of the theories is that this text was written to provide that type of essential knowledge for a new warrior elite in kamakura Um, the author this is a text where we actually are pretty sure who the author is Um, the author was tudor To uh, the shogun, um, who was also an imperial prince, Munetaka, um, and he went to Kamakura. So we believe that this text was actually written even in Kamakura. So whether it was for Munetaka initially or for a warrior readership more broadly is probably something we won't resolve anytime soon. But I think this this warrior appetite, um, you know, for the cultural for the accoutrement of high culture was really uh, one of the driving factors. Um, The author himself, Fujiwara no Shigenori, came from a branch of the Fujiwara known for their Chinese learning. And so when you start to read this text, uh, it's also a great way to show off, (laughs) to put it sort of crassly. Um, But Shigenori, the preface, I started trying to, working on some annotation for it for the book, and you realize that like, every clause is playing with chinese literary traditions so it's also a wonderful way to display shigenori's mastery of things chinese not just to teach it but to show it and i think this is also you know something that becomes increasingly important in later medieval period but the kind of peddling of cultural capital and as uh, Stephen Carter has written about this. So I think that that may well be another element. And, you know, as one of the things that I was wrestling with as I ta- thought about this in more sort of cosmological discursive terms was what it meant to show a China in decline for a Japanese audience. And that I don't have a definitive answer. Um, but one of the things that I sort of postulated in the book um, was that perhaps one of the great takeaways from the China mirror is that the mandate of heaven can move, right? Because it's going to move with every new Chinese dynasty. If you become the emperor, you have the mandate if you found a new dynasty. And of course, this is something that doesn't have an analog in Japan, or, you know, the idea that you could just, a different family could become legitimate rulers was something that was not really talked about. So I could imagine, or I could speculate that that message of the movability of heaven's mandate might appeal to you know a new rising elite who sort of increasingly sought power for themselves. Um, so
0: I think there's a lot going on in
1: that, but I don't think we'll ever just be able to pin it down to say, oh, this is the definitive reason.
0: I guess not but that's uh one of the things that I was most fascinated about this book is that um while you're talking about medieval japanese texts it's not just medieval japan that was involved uh you there's reflected in these texts um our uh thought or even other texts from regions around japan and uh I think that's uh really speaks to how um, Japan was this, uh, well, even in the modern times, Japan was actually quite global, and that's all reflected in these mirror works. So that actually ties into my next question for you. Um, If my understanding is correct, um, one of the central questions you're asking in this book is that when medieval thinkers wrote about the past, how they did it and more importantly what was successful and what was not through your examinations what are some of your conclusions about what was successful and what was not
1: that's a that is a new question for me thank you um what i haven't i've sort of struggled to navigate and as you probably know from the book i don't i have some ideas but i don't have a definitive once again i'm going to say i don't have a definitive answer i think one of the surprising things for me um in terms of how it didn't mesh with what i had been or what i had sort of assumed was the way things worked was the real was the kind of continual ongoing importance uh, or maybe prestige of writing in kambum um, so I, that was something that was exciting for me who started you know, since I started out as a sinologist, I was glad that was time well spent, um, but to see kind of classical Chinese or yeah, classical Chinese really continued to carry a certain performative weight. I think that we don't usually think about um, in this, especially in, in this earlier medieval period. So that was something that was interesting, but one of the biggest sort of moments where I was like, what is going on, <laughs> which in some ways I think are the more interesting moments, was we started to see, I guess we is just I, um, but I started to see, you know, increasing engagement with mirror style writing, right? So I talk about the and um, eh, the other one is, uh, um, so a discussion on plums and pines and the chronicle of gods and sovereigns, that I think are influenced by mirror writing. And, you know, Baishōrōn um, really co-opts, I would say, the preface style. And uh, Jinnō no Sotoki really plays with the language of dōri, with the language of principles. And then, of course, I went to look at the Heike. This is all going to come full circle. Don't worry, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. But then I went to look at the Heike preface, um, which... As I was talking recently um, with Michael Watson, you know, I really read in a new way, having read all of these mirrors, and I saw the importance of kind of a, again, this is a shortcut. I know we don't have nation states in those time periods, but a transnational geography, but also, again, this appeal of dori, of presenting the past as regulated. And... What was bizarre then so coming back to what was bizarre for me what was unexpected was that the mirrors really seemed to kind of move away from that discourse um especially the later ones you know i could say yes the cosmos is still subject to some sort of principle you know you look at masakagami things are still definitely headed downhill because she may i said you know we can read this as an argument for institutional longevity but there's the explicit engagement with you know theories of the cosmos as governing the historical change is gone and that was really puzzling to me because that seemed to be one of the elements that so many other medieval texts were picking up even like jokyuki you know the, the record of the jokyu years in the which i think is from the t- mid 13th century you know it has a discourse on cosmological time very close to that found in the water mirror So it seems like there's an audience for that, but the mirrors kind of abandon it. Um, So that was something that was really, that stood out to me and left me wondering, you know, what what was going on? And this is again, something that I, you know, sadly no one has left a diary and said, I wrote a mirror and this is what I meant. Um, But it made me think about what does it mean to write a text like a mirror Where place is so important to couching these claims of authority. So, you know, I have to be at a site that speaks for everyone, right? Um, Or at least within a mirror I do. And is that a sustainable claim in, you know, in the Warring States period? I mean, where would be the place that spoke for everyone, right? So I wasn't sure if the mirrors had just sort of outlived, if they were just speaking to a, a worldview that didn't resonate anymore as we got into the warring states period but at the same time they don't have and this is completely subjective but they don't have the storytelling appeal of something like the heike right you know even today i i read the preface to the heike i had a wonderful um, undergraduate student who was working on it for her honors thesis you know and it just gives you goosebumps right but I would be hard pressed, I must admit, to find a passage in the great mirror, for instance, where I got goosebumps. So I think there's a lot of things going on and I feel like I've sort of drifted away from your original question. So let me stop and let you recenter the conversation.
0: No, I mean, just listening to you mentioning all these mysteries in the mirror genre is rather exciting. Almost makes this whole project like a like a detective case. and. Uh, I really I love a good detective case, so I, I can't imagine how much fun you must be having solving all these mysteries in these <laughs> texts. Now you mentioned um, just earlier that the marriage genre continued to be produced um, towards the 14th century and even by early modern people in the Togo period, maybe 17th century. So mm-hmm. why did um, 17th century people read the mirror works? And are there any differences in the themes and contents between the ones that were produced later versus the ones produced in medieval time?
1: Yes, thank you. I think that there is a lot of different stuff going on here. Um, so I don't want to postulate a rupture. I don't think that that's the case. But I think when we look at the last mirror, um, the Mirror of the Gods from, you know, up late 14th, early 15th century, this is a time, or I chose to understand this um, in part in conversation with David Spafford's work, um, thinking about the idea of a persistent medieval, right? And sort of the cachet that the earlier medieval modes of solving problems had. And I, if memory serves, um, David was talking more about land management, but I wanted to think about, is this a historiographic analog to that, right? To look back to a a time when things were solvable, and use this genre, the mirror. Um, and so I think that that may be one of the things that's going on in the kind of dying days of the medieval mirror, as it were. But we also start to see, you know, in the Muromachi period, we're starting to see already other kinds of mirrors, you know, not just historiographic mirrors, but mirrors as other sorts of authoritative commentary and I want to say, now I can't remember if it's late Kamakura or early Muromachi, but Muzu Ichien has a mirror for women, right? So this idea that you can write a mirror and that's authoritative, we start to see outside of the mode of, quote unquote, historiographic writing. So that appetite, I think, is already there in the medieval period. And in some sense, I think that, that or what I wanted to think was that that appetite then is really, it lingers into the Tokugawa period. Um, And Tokugawa, we're really moving beyond the scope of my research, as you saw in the book. But we have mirrors for everything in the Tokugawa period. It's kind of amazing. Um, And one of the interesting things is, I I think it's Ieyasu, uh, who has a kana version of the Mirror of the East. So there's a lot of appetite for the mirror of the East, um, at least in early in Tokugawa shogunate. So that that's one thing I think that's kind of playing into this larger early modern appetite for mirrors. But I think the other another important element, um, and this is, you know, something I have talked a little bit about with the Japanese. Um, the Japanese scholar is this influx of Chinese learning that we're gonna see in the early modern period, right? So we are not sure, of course, when... Uh, and now, of course, the tones elude me. I should have looked it up, but uh, We're not sure when that's from, but we think that gets uh, the comprehensive mirror of governance. Um, we're not sure if that gets imported uh, or when precisely that gets imported, probably via Korea into Japan. Um, I believe I saw a source that said late 15th century. I know I have that buried in a footnote somewhere. Um, But, you know, we're going to see an analog to that commissioned, uh, Hayashi Razan, working on Honsotsugan, right? So the Japanese comprehensive mirror of history. So I think that there's a couple of things at least going on, you know, importation of Chinese models, Chinese learning, you know, it's kind of continuous cycle of bringing in things from the continent um, or recycle. And then also this long domestic tradition of mirrors as authoritative. And at least in my research, it seemed like, you know, they could become more, their scope of authority was growing over time. So.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I must add that my favorite uh, kinds of mirror works are the ones uh, from the middle and late Tokugawa period in which they teach uh they, they t- basically teach you how to be the cool kid around the pleasure court. <laughs> Those was absolutely um, hilarious to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm curious if I'm, a,
1: well, now you could edit this out, but um, I'm curious if I can ask you a question, you know, thinking about the mirror and the shift in the definition um, or the semantic widening, um, I, I, Wonder, and I didn't get into this in the book because I had enough to do, I thought, to work through already. But I couldn't help but wonder if any of this changing metaphorical dimension of the mirror had to do with the changing materiality of mirrors, right? Like when I went to visit um, an exhibition from the treasury at, uh, I want to say it's Kitano Tenmangu. It's been several years ago. But, you know, they had some mirrors hung up, um, Heian mirrors. I believe this one, the one I'm thinking of, I believe this one, the Heian period. And, you know, you, you can see it's, it's metal, but the reflection is not, it's, I mean, I could tell it was me, but, you know, I don't get the same quality of reflection as I do with a glass mirror. Right. And so I was wondering if to what extent the, yeah, again, this changing material of the mirror might also be bleeding into the changing sort of metaphorical usage of the mirrors. Um, And if that's something that you have thought about or have an answer for me, that would be great.
0: That is a great question. Um, Speaking as an early modernist, I do believe that the late Tuku'a period or from even maybe the middle Tuku'a period, people had more um, effective mirrors to mm-hmm. use which is why we I, I think that's one large reason when we see so many kinds of advertisements of cosmetics in popular fiction um it's one of my favorite things to look at is uh are these these ads for 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 powder for um for blush um sometimes even lipstick where they it didn't really, it wasn't necessarily lipstick, but they had all these cosmetics targeted at young female who lived in Edo or around Edo. They, I mean, yes, um, it's for other people, right? The The, the old saying goes that the, the the lady only dresses up for those who pleases her. But in in another sense, how can they Appreciate, or did they ever appreciate themselves with all those cosmetics and all the trendy clothes? If they didn't have mirrors to look into, so I think that's definitely something to think about. Um, And that's probably that's I think that's definitely a great point that um, may explain the different contents of these mirror works as time goes by.
1: Well, I, I'm gonna leave that to an early modernist <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> yes. to take up, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of listening to you talk to... I mean, when I look at, for instance, you know, Ukiyo-e prints, you can see every hair in the mirror, right? There's no way you can see every hair in a mirror from the Heian period.
0: Yes, and, <laughs> and, and uh, Ukiyo-e from the later periods, we definitely see there are scenes where people look into the mirror. Um, so that's there's definitely some improvements there, I believe. Now that we're moving towards the end of this conversation, I have another difficult question for you yeah. to, to end <laughs> our um, very pleasant conversation. So as your book has shown us, there was in fact Japanese historiography as was written in these mirror works. But it's never really discussed in any history, um, history methodology classes, at least to my knowledge. Um, I'm curious about what you have to say about this old cliché of the West has history while the East has culture. Because with all, this rich, all these rich materials in the mirror genre, there's clearly a Japanese historiography of some sorts. What can we do, or what should we do to incorporate the discussion of Japanese historiography in history or maybe uh, literary um, studies as well?
1: Great. Thank you for ending with such a a loaded question um or yes. a rich question, I should say. You know, this is, something that comes up in uh, a graduate an introductory graduate seminar that i have taught before um where we as asianists often felt feel as though you know implicitly or explicitly our work is measured against some i would say perhaps imagined or some constructed standard of especially uh, european but euro-american norms right um and so history is always measured to the extent that it matches that, for instance, and literary production is measured to the extent that it matches more familiar, quote unquote, to us in the United States narratives of, you know, how literature develops over time. And I was in a conversation last, a couple of weeks ago, where um, Jolian Thomas brought up that he was thinking I, and I, I don't remember if he was doing it this semester or planning it for the future, but trying to re-theorize or to encourage students to re-theorize production of, you know, these kinds of categories. Um, and I really think that that's what we need to be doing. You know, we were talking about, I think if we look at these mirrors, for instance, the task of the historiographer or the historian in these texts is... Not the same as what we presume to be the task of the historian. In, for instance, the Ameri- the you know U.S. tradition, right? Um, so it's not it's it's to be expected that there, you know, a lot of the older discourses about, you know, but these aren't true, right? Like the mirrors aren't accurate, or they don't measure, you know, they don't give the right dates. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about is this date wrong? Is that date wrong? Is this date off by two years or whatever? But I I don't think that that's, the exhaustive cataloging of dates, I don't think is what's at stake in these texts. And so I think we need to really step back and maybe consider in a more global way, what does it mean to write history? And I say global, but really allowing for, you know, different localized traditions to be evaluated to the extent that we can on their own terms. Um, Because, you know, a mirror is never going to do what we want, quote unquote, we quote unquote, want, (laughs) you know, proper history to do, right? But it's going to do something very important for its readers of of the time. And so I think that that is really, for me, at least, that's the kind of, you know, scholarship and thinking that I, myself, am interested in pursuing. Um, And so it's always going to come, or maybe not always, but often going to come back to these questions of, you know. How do we try to, even as we recognize that recovering a medieval reading is impossible, but how do we try to take these texts on their own terms? And I think that that is, for me again, at least a really central question to this kind of project.
0: That is very well said, and I definitely look forward to a day when we walk into a historiography class and we never start only with Francis Bacon, but we get to read Japanese history by by these Japanese historians in the past as well. That would be an exciting day, I think. Fingers crossed. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very pleasant talk. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate the chance to share my work. Thank you. And for our listeners who are surprised to hear that Japan has historiography too, make sure to take a look at Dr. Aaron Brightwell's new book, Reflecting the Past, Place, Language, and Principle in Japan's Medieval Mirror Genre. This is Jin Yi from the New Books Network, and I will see you in the next episode. Until then, goodbye.